Thank you, Nathan, for leading us in worship. I would encourage you to open with me to Colossians chapter 2. If you have a copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to follow along closely as we look at holy, inerrant, inspired words that are powerful. The Word of God has power. It's by His Word that He has created all things. It is by His Word that He has spoken your very being into existence. And He upholds us by the power of His Word. So what we're doing tonight and what we do as we gather around the Scriptures, whether it's corporately together, or whether it's by yourself in the early morning hours, we can expect to meet with God. And that is a great joy to my weary heart. You know, uh, the song that we just sang, the line, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. I don't know about you, but the more that I walk with Christ, the more that I discover that sin runs deeper in my heart than I thought. So I'm so thankful that grace runs deeper still. And because of, as Mark reminded us in his prayer, because of the adoption that we have as sons and daughters, we are totally secure in God's love. What a glorious, glorious reality. Colossians chapter 2. When I was in seminary, one summer I got a job working at a tire and, and oil or a tire and lube shop. I got the job simply because I did not like the feeling that I had not knowing much about this vehicle that I was utterly dependent upon. And so I went and applied to the manager and it went something like this. I know how to change my oil. I know how to rotate tires. And will you hire me? <laughs> and I said, I work for cheap, but I really want to learn stuff. I want to, I want to learn more about cars. And, and uh, he, said, he said, sure. I was like, okay, you're, I can learn more than just how to put on tires and, and how to change oil. He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I spent the whole summer changing oil and putting tires on, on cars. That's basically all that I did. And I worked with some really rough guys. Got to share the gospel a lot, but I worked with a 20-something-year-old guy who couldn't read, couldn't spell oil. He asked me how to spell oil regularly. It was written up on the wall, O-I-L-E, kidding, right? And these rough guys, I mean, they would fight all the time. It was a really kind of competitive environment. And they would sort of, they didn't want to teach me stuff. And they would sabotage me. Well, normally we didn't work together that much. But one day we were kind of slow. And Jeep Cherokee came in. We needed to uh, change the oil and put on four, four new tires. And all three of us were working on it together. And we finished up the work. We put the wheels back on. And, uh, and we, you know sent them sent them on their way and I left and went home for for lunch when I was coming back from lunch I saw this green Jeep Cherokee on the side of the road about 150 yards from the shop and it was missing two of its wheels and I thought well that stinks I just went back to work right well I walked back into work uh and I walked into a firestorm. It appears that the two wheels fell off the car because we did not put them all the way back on. And so immediately we were all fighting over whose responsibility it was. And the way it works is that, that when there's, you know, when all three of us are working, one person would put the wheels back on and, t you know, hand tighten the lug nuts and wait for someone else to come behind you with the impact gun and, and you know, really tighten them up. And, and that step had, had been 
had been missed. You know, so technically, you know, we finished the work. Like, we put the tires back on. We even did a turn or two of, of the lug nuts. Technically, we, we, we did the work, new tires, oil change, but we didn't completely finish. We did what we were paid to do, but we did not totally finish the job. I'm sure you've had this experience in business, hopefully not uh, like, like this incident, but where people don't quite finish the work they're supposed to do. Whether it's the guy fixing your air conditioner, or cutting your hair, or filing your taxes, whatever it is, they, they, they finish, but they miss a spot. I remember when I was 12, or young, when I learned how to mow the lawn. Mowed the lawn for the first time, we had a big lawn, and my dad, I got done, and my dad said, son, you only mowed like 80% of the lawn. I was like, really? <laughs> I couldn't even see it, right? Only doing, doing part of it. Well, Jesus isn't like that. When Jesus works, he finishes, he completes his work. We can find a number of concrete examples, I think, that are encouraging of his tendency to complete the work that he begins. I think one example would be his healings that we find recorded for us in the Gospels. We see Jesus performing all sorts of healings of all different ailments, and, and it's always complete. One summary in Matthew chapter 15, and the text says, When the crowd saw the mute speaking, the cripple healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they glorified the God of Israel. Because Jesus healed completely. We never see him restoring one eye. We never see him restoring a man who is lame and now he walks with a limp. He heals completely. They don't limp, they leap. Just as Jesus made the sick completely well, so too does he provide complete spiritual healing for his people. And that's what we'll see tonight in this text, how Jesus accomplishes the complete salvation of his people. Last week, we looked at verses 8 through 10, where we saw Paul warning this church at Colossae of of the dangers of seeking spiritual fullness in anyone or anything other than Christ. We talked about some of the dangers there and how that relates to our culture. And, and, and the reason is that because of our position in Christ, being what Paul calls in Christ, we don't need to seek any other fullness. Look down at the text. You'll see, I know I haven't read it yet, but you'll see there in verse, verse 9, the text says that we have been filled in him. So it's, those two words describe a whole spiritual state of affairs, this, this position of being in Christ that we as Christians get to enjoy. We are in him. And this week in verses 11 through 15, we will see how Paul continues to focus on these incredible spiritual realities, but he goes further by explaining how they came about how they came into being, what Jesus had to accomplish to produce these benefits. It seems that Paul wants the Colossians to not only understand the spiritual blessings they enjoy, but to understand what it took to achieve them, what it took to achieve those blessings. I'm not very good at cooking, but I have found that I prefer cooking things that have like two steps, right? It's like you take salsa and you take chicken and you put it in a crock pot and you press a button. I'm like, hey, 
I'm cooking, right? But then if you try to bake stuff, there's like 38 steps and it's extremely messy and you end up with this pile of like flop, right? I mean, you appreciate complex things more when you know what goes into it. I act like I've baked a cake before. I've never baked a cake. I'm not, I don't I know that it's hard though, right? I just eat cake. We want to understand what it took to achieve these blessings. It's a lesson that's really helpful for us because it teaches us about our old selves, our old nature. And it also teaches us about our new selves and all the glorious work of Christ. So let's read Colossians 2. Let's read verses 11 through 15 together and then I'm going to pray um, and ask for the Lord's help here. Verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead in you who were dead in your trespasses In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray to this triumphant God. God, for some reason I am extra aware of how needy I am as I stand before you and before your people. And Lord, really all of us are desperately needy, far more than we know. We've sung about it. We may have, because of your spirit, we may have a sense of our need, but it is so much deeper than we know. So, Father, have pity on us tonight. Lord, I sense that there's a danger in this text. A danger for us as people who hear preaching often and read our Bibles with frequency. A danger to just hear these words and let them roll off our heads. Father, don't let that happen. I pray that for every person in this room, perhaps there would be one phrase that would penetrate our hearts with clarity and perspicuity, Father, that you would drive it into us, that we would see you with more beauty and more awe and more reverence. Let it kill sin in our hearts. Let it give us hope and joy and life. Lord, please accomplish these things. So to that end, there is no need for human help. So let my words fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Just let the word of God, the powerful word of God remain. And we know it always bears fruit. And so we will look for that by faith. We ask this in your name. Amen. In just a minute, we are going to look at three aspects of the complete work of Christ. But before we do that, I want to try to illustrate a key idea in this text. It's this, it's this idea of being in Christ. In Christ. If you look down at verse 11, the very first verse, it begins with this phrase, in him. 
And if you were to go through, really starting at verses 9 all the way down to, to 15, if you were to look at all the spots, if you were to circle them, that said in him or with him or in Christ, you would find a number of these instances. Paul is making it very clear that the primary thing to notice is that all of this is something that has to do with being in or with Christ. If you've been reading Paul's letters for a long time, I, this should be familiar to you. You've probably scratched your head like me many times trying to understand what does that prepositional phrase mean? What does it mean to be in him or in Christ or with Christ? It appears again and again and again. Theologians call this concept union with Christ. A a uniting, a, a unity that we have with Christ by faith. It's an incredibly rich, uh, complex idea that means in part that we are by faith brought into a special relationship with Christ where we enjoy benefits because of our relationship with him. And in this text... The word, and there's different aspects of this, but in this text, the word I want to put in your minds as we're thinking about union with Christ is participation. Participation. Participating with Christ. Those of us who have, by faith, been united with Christ, we have been united with him in such a way that we have actually participated in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection and his glorious life and all that he has accomplished. And that means that all the benefits that Christ enjoys, we enjoy in him. Christ unites us to himself by faith. And then we become participants in his victory. Now I know that these ideas are... <laughs> they, they make your head hurt, right? They, they can feel very abstract. So let's see if we can illustrate it. This is an imperfect illustration, I think, but I'll try. In many college and pro sports teams, there's a tradition that when a team, you fill in the team, I won't fill in a team for you, but when a team uh, wins a national championship, the, they get, the players, the owners and coaches decide who gets a ring, right? A big old honking, gaudy, expensive championship ring. And the rings are almost always distributed to more than just the players. Coaches get a ring. Assistant coaches get a ring. Often you even uh, the trainers, the owners get a, the owners if it's a pro team, they get they get a ring. Even team managers and and strength coaches, they all get a championship ring. And the idea is noble, isn't it? The idea is it takes a team to win a championship. So everyone who participates on that team gets a ring, even the towboy sometimes. Some people contribute or participate more than others for sure, but they get a ring. I recently read the story of the Indianapolis Colts running back, Edgren James, who had a number of good seasons for the Colts back in 1999 to 2006. But in 2006, he he left the Colts for a lucrative contract with another team. But then the very next year, Peyton Manning, 2007, led the Colts to a Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51, I believe. 
And when it came time to order the rings, the Colts organization believed that this former player had played such a significant role that even though he wasn't even on the team the season that they won, they sent the guy a ring. Isn't that wild? He didn't play a single game that year. He actually competed against them. But the owners considered that his contribution was so significant that he should be considered a participant in that victory. That's wild, isn't it? But even wilder than that, we'll leave it to the Patriots to top it. I read that when the Patriots won the Super Bowl back in 2016, the Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, sent Tom Brady's mom a Super Bowl ring. Now, from what I know of Tom Brady, there's a good chance Tom Brady's mom is significantly better than me at football. But it's real significant for her because she was very sick. She was on chemo. She was on chemotherapy and only made it to, to one game. I suppose she participated by giving birth to Tom Brady. But, but she, Galen Brady, got a Super Bowl ring, right? She contributed more to the Patriots winning the Super Bowl 51. She contributed more to that Super Bowl win than you or, you or I did to our salvation. Yet, just like Miss Brady, we have somehow become participants in Christ's victory. We contributed nothing, but we get to enjoy the spoils. Everything that Christ has accomplished, everything that he has experienced, it is as if we were right there with him. It is as if we were full participants. And we get to enjoy the staggering, stunning benefits and perks of salvation. We participate through our union with Christ. Let's take a look at what Paul says about how Christ completes this great work. The first thing I'd like for you to notice is there in verses 11 and 12, and that is Christ has made us completely new. Completely new. This is the longest and most complicated sentence in this passage. And you'll notice quickly this repeated concept of circumcision, right? You see it there in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, now before we try to untangle the, the, the meaning of the circumcision here, let's remind ourselves, big picture, of how the Bible presents the significance of circumcision. One of the primary significances or primary themes of circumcision is that circumcision was commanded by God for his people to serve as a physical reminder, hey, you are my people. You have been set apart to serve me. You are holy. And it was a physical, a physical reminder that God's people were set apart. They were to be marked, marked as God's people. But the meaning runs even deeper. Circumcision was an outward demonstration that a man was sinful and needed to be cleansed. Now, I know this is a graphic and even bloody image, but this was not my idea, right? So you can read the Bible yourselves and we're, we can think about this together, but let's, let's think about this. A piece of skin is separated from the life-giving part of human anatomy. And the reason for that is because the life that man produces is sinful. 
The life that man produces is always sinful. Circumcision symbolizes that man has a desperate need to be cleansed. A desperate need for a clean heart. And even though this was a physical symbol, the Bible is very clear that it gets taken beyond physical to a spiritual symbol. There are numerous biblical writers that teach that circumcision, it, it unfolds to point to something bigger, to a, to a spiritual reality. We don't just need a piece of skin removed. We need new hearts. We need new hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 10 is one of the numerous places where, where Moses commands the people, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. Or in Jeremiah chapter 4, which we read a couple weeks ago in the, in the CBR reading, we, we read about how God is commanding the people, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your hearts. And it follows this biblical pattern that God is not concerned, God's not concerned about the physical ritual. He's concerned with what? The heart. The Lord doesn't look at outward appearances primarily. He looks at the heart. And in this text, I think it's pretty evident that the circumcision is not a physical circumcision. It's a spiritual one. You see that in the phrase, it's one made without hands. Right? It's a spiritual one. And that it's by the circumcision of Christ. I take this to mean that on the cross... Christ accomplished a certain kind of spiritual circumcision for believers. That when we are united to Christ by faith, Christ cuts off your spiritual, it cuts off your physical nature. He cuts off your your flesh, the, the sinful nature that we're enslaved to as unbelievers. Christ separates, he severs our sinful hearts, and then he gives us new circumcised hearts. It's in this bloody act of the cross that we see Christ cutting off our old, fleshly, sinful nature. There's really, I suppose, even a sense of where on the cross, the cross itself is a, can be compared to an act of circumcision. It's a bloody event where Christ's body was separated. It was circumcised from him through his death on the cross. And since we participate with Christ, remember we are in him, our sinful natures died with Christ's physical body. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified, here it is again, with Christ. I no longer live, it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Christ did for us. Look back there at the text. It says, he did this by putting off the body of flesh. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is explaining this concept. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the flesh, might be brought to nothing. They might be killed so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, I know that there are lots of big ideas here, but I hope that you're getting this picture that in Christ, Christ has separated our sinful nature from us. And that is a glorious truth. Do we still struggle with sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul goes on to talk about that in chapter 7 of Romans. But it no longer dominates us. We struggle, but we are not dominated. Before, all we could do, as we'll see in a few minutes, all we could do was sin. But now, Christ has given us new hearts. And those new hearts have new desires. Desires to please God. Desires for holiness. That, that aching that you have in your heart to be rid of sin, that's the beat of a new spiritual heart. That conviction that you sense after you sin, that's the work of the Spirit in your new heart beating for the Lord. The scriptures say that anything that's not done by faith, not from faith, is sin. And the, spirit, the new heart gives us faith to act in obedience to God. We have these new desires. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what a glorious promise. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is not just a surgery. This is a recreation. This is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So what's the big difference? What's the big difference in the old heart and the new heart? Well, the, the, the big difference is this. We have a new disposition, a new inclination, a new disposition to do good and to obey God. It's the work of these new hearts. You'll notice also there in verse 12 that Paul is evoking the language of baptism. Which is further strengthening this idea that in our union with Christ, we identify with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, right? That's what we talk about in baptism. And here we get a taste of this resurrection power that is active in us even now. I was thinking about this even as I was writing this today and and thinking on this today and praying through this today. I was thinking, I don't feel this. Right? I, I, don't, I don't feel this. That's why I need this text, right? To remind me that the same power that rose Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in my heart because of Christ. Doesn't that give you hope in your struggle with sin? You are no longer dominated by sin. You've been set free. And I pray that that would act in your life to produce faith. Paul says that through our faith... We have been raised by the powerful work of God. That's the, that's the language here. It's, it's the work of God, the energy. The energy that God had to raise Jesus from the dead is the same energy working in your life, believer. It assists us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. This resurrection energy is also a sanctification energy. He's changing us. He's not leaving you. He completes his work. So Christian, you who are weary with sin, take heart. We have access to the same resurrection power that Jesus did, and we can overcome our sin in Christ. What a glorious and lofty reality. 
A second thing to notice from this text is that there in verses 13 and 14 is that Christ has completely forgiven us. Completely forgiven us. Paul shifts back to describing the spiritual condition that we were once in. He does it by describing two different aspects of our sinful condition. The first, and we're familiar with these, the first is that we were spiritually dead. We were in bondage to death. The text says we were, in there in verse 13, dead in our trespasses. Because of our sin, we were dead to the things of God. Perhaps there's someone here even tonight, even as you hear these words, you are dead to the things of God. Friend, your only hope is for God to give you a new heart, to open your eyes, that you would see the beauty of Christ, that you would be raised to life by faith in him. And I pray that that would be true. You see, those who are dead are unable to perceive truth. They're devoid of spiritual senses. They are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. It's a text that is so, it's spoken of so often that I think we often kind of uh, dull, dull it down, right? We, we try to soften the blow a little bit because it's so extreme. But think about it like this. The property that my wife and I, uh, the house that we live on, it backs up to a graveyard. Both my wife and I grew up right beside graveyards. No big deal to us. Our kids, they don't know any different. They like to play in the graveyard, right? It's no big deal to us. I realize it's creepy to some. But let's just say, and this is hypothetical, I promise. Let's just say that my wife and I were having a disagreement, right? It's hard to imagine, but let's just say that we were. Let's just say that perhaps, for illustration's sake, that we were disagreeing over the circumstances of Princess Diana's death. Which we may have last night. Alright? And let's just say, <laughs> and let's just say that I said, okay, I'm going to settle this. I'm going to go ask Miss Dorothy Gaines. So I walk through my backyard, I open up the back gate, I walk out to Miss Dorothy Gaines' tombstone, and I say, Dorothy, hey, help me settle this, right? And I ask her my question. What kind of response am I going to get? Miss Dorothy Gaines, I'm sure she was a wonderful woman, died in 1967. She is unresponsive because she is dead. She cannot respond to me. She cannot answer any of my questions. And she is unable to help me, right? Because she is dead. Our deadness, the, in the uncircumcision of our flesh, that is how spiritually dead we are in our sinful condition. We were so locked up in sin's grasp that his truth made no sense to us. It did not compel us. We did not like it. We did not want it. We were not interested. Those who are spiritually dead are totally enslaved to Satan. They're totally enslaved to his ways. Even if they're polite, right? You, you realize that there can be really sinful reasons to be polite? Even if they're polite. Those who are separated from Christ are enslaved to Satan. They possess no spiritual life. And so Christ comes along, praise God, and he makes us alive in him. There's a beautiful picture of this, I think, in 1 in first, in first, first Kings chapter 17. 
when Elijah, the, the prophet of God, is, is, is sent through the Lord's instruction to stay with a certain widow. Perhaps you remember the story. Elijah stays there for a little while and apparently he's not a very good house guest because the son of the widow dies. And she grieves and she cries out, Why have you had my sin visit me that now death has come? And so Elijah takes the boy in his arms. The text says there's no breath in him. And he carries him upstairs to his own bed and he lays him out across the bed. And then Elijah cries out to God. And I'd never noticed this before, but Elijah lays out on top of the boy. His chest to his chest, his leg on his legs, all the way out across him. His heart that is beating is on top of a heart that is still. And Elijah cries out to God. He pleads, pleads, and pleads, and the boy comes back to life. It's in this manner that we are given spiritual life. Christ lays his new, death-proof, fully alive life upon our deadness, and we come to life. We were, you were, brother and sister, actually dead. But now you are alive in Christ. And not only are you alive, but you are, as we've been seeing, full in him. You have the fullness of life that Christ enjoys. He, he unites us to Christ. And as Jesus steps out of the grave with a resurrection heart and a resurrection body, so do we. We rise. We are as death-proof as Christ is spiritually. Death, where is your sting? Reunited with Christ. Now there's tension here. Some of this is coming. Some of this has already happened. But this has been accomplished for us in Christ. The text says that all of our transgressions are forgiven. I'd like to invite you to notice the completeness here. All of them. It's, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me. It's easier for me to think about like this big lump of my sin in the past and say, oh, thank you, God, that you've forgiven those transgressions. It is so much harder for me to think of my sin today and to see that Christ has forgiven those even still. And the transgressions that await me, that my sinful flesh will still fall into, even those Christ has forgiven me still. Our transgressions are forgiven. And that brings us to the second part of, our, of the spiritual problem. Because not only are we spiritual, spiritually dead, but we're spiritually indebted. I got excited and got ahead of myself. We have this bondage of guilt. Verse 14 describes this record of debt. A record of debt that stands against us. A list of all of our sins. And I would imagine that if you and I were to somehow see this list, we would see categories of sins that we weren't even aware of. Right? There's some things that we know about. Oh, I know that, that time and anger, I know that'll be on the list. I know those things I looked at back then, that'll be on the list. I know these things that I did before I was a I know that'll be on the list. There will be whole categories of sin that you're not even aware of. All noted 
neatly organized one by one. Every single one of them, every instance that we've broken God's law, every instance that we've given glory to something or someone else other than God, every single moment of sin and unbelief written down, waiting to be accounted for. The Greek word that's used here is similar to the word autograph. The idea, I think, is that we have taken part in writing this list. We have our own handwriting. We have willingly and willfully sinned against God. The notion in this culture is that this, this debt is like an IOU, like a banknote, right? Like, a, like an IOU that because of my sin, what, what, right? because of this one sin, fill in the blank, I owe God one eternity in hell. Because of this next sin, fill in the blank, I owe God one eternity in hell. On and on and on and on, signed Nathan Seymour. The phrase legal demands reminds us that God is a judge, that God is a lawgiver. It harkens back to all the individual details, this massive burden of the Mosaic law that God gave his people, God's standards for holiness. And every single one of us has a folder full of these IOUs, these deadly terminal IOUs. Our fingerprints are all over them. Our handwriting is clear. Some of the sin is old. Years and years ago. Some of the sin is fresh. I added to my list today. Some of it is in the future. All of it is very real. And yet, like Tom Brady's mom and her Super Bowl ring, we become honorary participants in the cross of Christ. Where our sin is judged and wrath is poured out and justice is satisfied. Even though we contribute nothing. The the text says that on the cross, Jesus Christ canceled that debt. I've heard this my whole life. I've read this my whole life. I want it to be fresh for me, though. I want it to be fresh for you. He canceled the debt and all of its legal just penalties. Just as his hands were nailed to the cross, so to our list, our guilt was nailed to the cross. Like chalk on a chalkboard, our sins were canceled. They were erased. I'm told that ancient documents and, and the ink that was used was quite different than ours. Apparently, the, the ink lacked the acidity that binds ink to a text. So, I think for most, uh, for most documents, it was very easy to just wipe off the ink and have a, a fairly new parchment or papyrus or whatever ready to use again. That's what Christ has done. He erased that record of guilt. 
It may be easy to think of erasing a document or erasing a dry erase board, but oh, what great cost Christ went to to erase our sin debt. Because he didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't just put it aside. He paid it in full. And in doing so, made a way for debtors to be forgiven. Isn't that glorious news? I don't care what's going on in your life. That is glorious, glorious news that has been secured for us in Christ. One final point to note. Third thing is that Christ has won complete and total victory. You'll see this here in verse 15. Paul picks up again with this image of rulers and authorities which we have seen previously, I think is, is referring to spiritual, demonic rulers and authorities, the, the forces of this present world. And the image that we have here is really, really fun. It's really, really great. They're totally conquered. They're whipped, disarmed, shamed. Christ has triumphed over them. Rather than going in detail on this tonight, I'll close with, a, with, a, with an illustration that I think gives, uh, gives life to this glorious picture. And part of this I'll be quoting significantly. The first century historian Plutarch was uh, basically a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. And he was a historian and a philosopher. And, and he writes of a true historical account of a victory and a victory parade. The Roman general Armelius Paulus returned from conquering Macedonia. And he returned from Macedonia into Rome into a massive victory parade. Plutarch tells us that they came and they built scaffolding. Think of if you watched the royal wedding. <laughs> Man, my kids love the royal wedding. I was like, how do they even know to be into... Addie asked me last night, Daddy, do you like weddings? No. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Right. So this picture of sca- they built scaffolding all through the streets of Rome just so spectators could come and watch. And just like they do in the NBA playoffs, Rome did a whiteout. All of the citizens of Rome wore all white for victory. And for three days, there was a parade. The first day, 259 of the enemy's chariots were brought in, filled with statues and pictures and colossal images that were taken from the enemy. On the second day, there were... Wagons, too many to count, that bore the armor in heaps of all the Macedonians. There was so much armor that it was piled up in artistic heaps. And, 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 and uh, Plutarch says it like this. He says, helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst horses' bits. And through these appeared the pointed the points of naked swords. Following the wagons came three thousand of the enemy's silver, carried in seven hundred and fifty vessels of money, the enemy's treasure. The third day came all the captives, preceded by 120 oxen that were to be sacrificed, with their horns gilded with ribbons and garlands. Then came all the Macedonian gold. 
Then came the king's, the conquered king's chariot, his crown, his horses, his armor. Then came the king's servants, weeping, with with their hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Then came the children of the king. Then came the conquered king himself, King Perusus, clad entirely in black, followed by an endless stretch of his prisoners. Finally came the victorious general, dressed all in white, seated on a chariot, magnificently adorned with purple over his robe, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, and all of his army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands. They were divided into their bands and companies. They, they followed the chariots of their commanders. Some were singing verses according to the custom of their triumph, to the praise of their commander's deeds. Brothers and sisters, on the cross, Christ conquered evil. And there is a massive parade that is waiting. God defeated all evil powers of the world and put them to open shame. Yet, they exist, and yes, they are still alive, but they have been totally defeated. I suppose the only reason that they still exist is to be a part of God's massive victory parade, where we will see and give glory and honor to our commander, Jesus Christ, for what he has accomplished. If there are any here tonight who have not placed their faith in Christ, who have not united themselves by faith in him, turn to him. Receive a new life by faith. Receive a ring you didn't earn. And for all of us who are united to Christ by faith, may we praise him all the more, our conquering general, for the fullness that we have in him. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for the victory that you've achieved, and we trust that you would work its fruit in our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.